And good morning to Daniel Mumby. Good morning, Richard. How nice are you? Nice to see you back again. How was London? London was absolutely fantastic. Thank great. You. I had a great weekend, um, socialising with friends. The play I went to see was rather indifferent, but I also managed to catch The Woman in Black at Finchley Road. It so. was you who texted me. Oh, yes, you got that. <laughs> yes. Yes. So we'll come on to that as and when, but yes, yeah. I have a lot to say about that. Right, well, um... Oh, I went to see um, Puss in Boots last Saturday. Oh, right. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I'm glad to hear it. I was the oldest in there by about 40 years, but uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a really good afternoon. Enjoyed it. And I had lunch up at Barrick Maltings. Um, I don't normally plug these things, but it is a voluntary organisation, mm -hmm. so we'll say what a great lunch I had, so thank you. Yeah. Okay, um, shall we have a look what's on at the Playhouse this week? Yeah, let's start with the Playhouse and then the um, Maltings. Uh, 13th. What day is that? Uh, Get my fingers out. It's Monday. Monday. No, sorry, no, it's Tuesday. Yes, yeah, Tuesday. Tuesday. Yes. I'm not awake either this yes. morning. Um, <laughs> anyway, Tuesday the 13th of March at 7.30, they've got Coriolanus. Which is a really impressive Shakespeare adaptation. It's Rafe Fiennes directing as well as starring in one of Shakespeare's more complex and convoluted plays, but I think he does a very good job of... Um, updating the material, and Vanessa Redgrave is on fiery form, the best she's been since The Devils, I would say. That's good. And then, uh, Wednesday at 7.30, Thursday at 2 o'clock and 7.30, it's War Horse. Yes, the Geordie joke that just won't go away. I think, <laughs> no, I, I think it is clearly hitting its target audience. I don't think it's a great work by Steven Spielberg. It is, in the end, episodic and, and schmaltzy, but then again, I don't have any problem with schmaltz. I think... I think if uh, if you're a fan of the play, you might be disappointed by how, like I say, picaresque it is. But otherwise, it's a good, solid, old-fashioned tearjerker. And I no, I'm I'm the one who championed Shadowlands, so I've got nothing against <laughs> tearjerkers. And uh, the Playhouse box office number is oh one double six five five one zero seven eight five. He said, having to remember it because somebody has half-inched the cassette this week. Charlatans. Yes, terrible. Meanwhile, up at uh, Berwick um, tomorrow afternoon at two thirty, and then. Monday afternoon at four o'clock is a monster in Paris, which is a perfectly decent, um, slightly forgettable children's animation. Best f uh, thing about it is probably the musical numbers because they involve um, Vanessa Paradis, who is of course married to Johnny Depp, but is a very good singer in her own right. All right, and then Monday evening at eight o'clock is Young Adults, which I like actually. I mean, it's Diablo Cody's script. Diablo Cody being the uh, the lady who wrote um, Juno, which was great, and Jennifer's Body, which has become a minor cult hit actually in certain parts of America. Uh, so it might turn up on this slot a few in a few months down the line. Um, no, it's the idea of Charlize Theron is is a middle aged woman who is basically not grown out of her adolescence. She is writing teenage fiction. She goes back to her high, old high school town and falls in love with her old sweetheart. No, it is surprisingly sort of twisted and foul-mouthed for you no know, a film which you'd think could be just you no know, a Judd Apatow-esque comedy where it, you know boring but I think it's actually a very decent piece of work not perfect by any means but Charlize Theron demonstrates that she's more than just a pretty face once again okay and then on to Wednesday evening and an oldie Bicycle Thieves which is great I mean if, you know if you haven't heard of Bicycle Thieves then you need or seen it for that matter you need to see it in a great piece of late 40s Italian neorealism you know influence pretty much everything right up to life is beautiful great film about you no know, Italian politics which has at its center you know a close relationship between father and son as they go around guess what stealing bicycles it's really really good and then Friday evening man on a ledge no, the first five minutes are okay, and every time that Jamie Bell's on screen, it starts to get going, but Sam Worthington can't act. 
And then next Sunday afternoon at 2.30, we'll talk more about this in the top ten, Journey to the Mysterious Island. Mm -hmm. And the box office number for the Maltings is 01289 330999. Now, just between you and me, don't tell anybody else, but uh, much as I was raving about what a great afternoon I had at the Maltings, I do actually think the screen is better at the Annick Playhouse, right. if you get a choice. Okay. Shall we do the top ten? Yes. Right. Before we get taken off their Christmas list again. Yes. <laughs> Number ten is The Vow. Which, you know, is a bit underwhelming, to be honest. And, and I like Rachel McCandings enough, because she was in The Time Traveller's Wife, which I think is underrated, but the film is essentially either Fifty First Dates with More Tears or While You Were Sleeping Without the Charm of Sandra Bullock. So, no, go and rent While You Were Sleeping instead, because that's a much better film. Number nine, as we said, it's on at Berwick next weekend, is Journey to the Mysterious Island. Which is a bit of a pot boiler, to be honest. I mean... It's not as good as the first film, if only because the first film had Brendan Fraser, who genuinely seems to understand family entertainment, you know, is willing to make a fool of himself for the sake of making children happy, whereas the rock in this looks a bit out of place. You know, I'm glad that the Maltings aren't going to be showing it in 3D, but it is all over the place. Right, number eight, and it's on in Annick on the 11th of April, though I think it's pretty well sold out, is The Artist. I mean, what more is there to say? It's just one best picture at the Oscars. I think it's one of the most deserving winners of that, of that accolade in the past decade, to be honest, right up there with Slumdog Millionaire. And, no, it's really great to see, you know, the film that was dismissed as a gimmick, as being, oh, it's just a black and white film in 4x3 and it's silent or near silent, actually winning over the hearts and minds of Hollywood, who are the most conservative and banal voting academy in the world. And I'm off to Berwick to see that one. That's the first week in April. I think it's the Wednesday before Easter that that one's on, if I remember correctly. Okay, well, we'll give that coverage when we come to that week. Right, uh, it's number seven. It's Wanderlust. Uh, which is really irritating, to be honest. I mean, it's Paul Rudd and Jennifer Aniston, who have no chemistry and no cinematic presence. Jennifer Aniston just has a face that, you know, makes you think she should be back on television. That's got nothing to do with how long Friends lasted, but she just has a, a TV-ish face. The story is, you no. Know, boring and uninvolving. It basically takes the story of the Manson family, in the sense that it's a hippie commune which is attracting outsiders and then you know, doing all, all manner of things yeah. with the woman. And it's Judd Apatow producing it, so you know it's not going to be pro-women in any way. My advice is if you want a film about hippie communes, go and watch Martha Marcy May Marlene, because that's a much better film, even though it is deeply uncomfortable. Number six, panned by the critics, loved by the audiences, Project X, <laughs> love or hate? Well, hate, I'm afraid. I just think it's not because it's, no... I don't think it's a dreadful film, but it's just incredibly mean-spirited. I mean, it does make Skins look like the famous five. In this, <laughs> yes. Because you know that when Skins started, there was all sorts of outcry about, no, oh, teenagers aren't really like this. They're not just drug-fueled, sex-obsessed maniacs. But this basically, you know, takes Skins and takes it to its complete extreme. It's produced by Todd Phillips, who did the Hangover films. Yeah. So, no, already we're in dodgy territory, and the found footage motif is pointless. Number five, it's the Muppets! Exactly, and we should say the Oscar-winning Muppets, because yes. it did win Oscar for Best Song. It did indeed. Yes. yes, and there has been some discussion about whether or not this is a genuine family film, because a lot of people have written in saying that the adults who saw the TV series the first time around enjoyed it more than their children. I do think that it's 
more self-conscious than the original Muppet films were, in the sense that it's looking back on the history of the TV show and indeed the previous films. But it is a genuine family film in the sense that it's not just pitching to the adults on one level and the kids on another. It's not filled with in-jokes. And Amy Adams is terrific. So, no, if you want family entertainment, go and see it. And number four, Denzel Washington and Ryan Reynolds in Safe House. Which is just a bit disappointing. I mean, I really like Denzel Washington. I mean, I, I'm going to watch American Gangster again in the next couple of weeks, just to remind me that's a Ridley Scott film, which is very underrated. Got overlooked quite a lot when it got released. Um, what I was hoping for was... A sort of Science of the Lambs-ish thriller with little bits of John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. And no, there are individual pockets in the film in which they do actually sit down and do the character stuff about Denzel Washington getting inside Ryan Reynolds' hair. But the rest of the time, it's sort of aimless running, jumping and shooting. <laughs> and no, I don't mind running, jumping and shooting in an action film, but when you've got two different genres clashing head-on, it doesn't really work. Talking about mindless running, jumping and shooting, this means war at number three. Which is wretched. I mean, it's directed by Mick Chee, who uh, did the, the two Charlie's Angels films and then killed off the Terminator franchise with Terminator Salvation. Um, I know you don't like Terminator anyway, but no, believe me, if you thought Terminator 3 was, you know, slightly below par, Terminator Salvation would make you lose the will to live. I mean, Mick Chee was once described as Michael Bay's untalented cousin, because he basically has a talent of taking people who are incredibly talented, like Christian Bale, like Tom Hardy in this, who is yeah. a terrific actor, and basically making it look like they've had all the soul sucked out of them. It's a stupid premise. The action set pieces are boring. Boring. And I'm just so angry that you could put Tom Hardy in a film and waste him so much. And it does feel as if it's sort of a bit derivative, the, the uh, story. Yes, it is. I mean, yes. it's, it is, it's, you look back to things like Entrapment when you've got, you know, yeah. spies competing and so forth. I mean, for all the things that are wrong with Entrapment, that is far better than this. Yes. Was it Mr. and Mrs. Smith? That's the, the best uh, of the genre. Yes. I mean, yes, fantastic. Yeah, of course, that was the film which uh, Jennifer Aniston won't watch for various reasons <laughs> that we, we won't go into. Right, number two, the one you went to see last weekend, The Woman in Black. Yeah, I saw this in Finchley Road last week and I really, really like it. I mean, I was raving about it when um, it first came into the top ten and I'm still very glad. Like you, when you went to see Puss in Boots, I was the oldest person in the screening room because, the, no, the rest of it was absolutely full of teenagers. Well, and that's interesting. Yes. Uh, well, it's a 12 certificate film, so it's, yes. it's pitching to that crowd. And I was really, no, I was getting creeped out about it, but I was wondering, well, there's a few people munching sweets behind me, how are they getting on? And then when the big scares came, everyone screamed in unison, so I thought, yes, this yeah. is really working. I think the thing that impresses me the most is the fact that it utilises all the old-fashioned tropes of ghost story films from the 1960s, like The Haunting and The Innocence, and it plays them straight, but without sort of saying, these will work because you know them. It's not hokey at all, and there is a real sense of dread, particularly the sequence in, uh, you know, the hanging sequence, uh, where that's recreated, or where the, the pony and trap is being pulled out of the mud, which in the play is very, very creepy, but this, yeah. it, it reminded me of Don't Look Now to some point. So I was really creeped out by it. I don't think it's as groundbreaking as something like The Orphanage, because it is, in the end, recycling a lot of well-worn tropes, but doing it very well. And I do think, you know, it's not up to the standard of the stage play quite, but it is a really good, solid, old-fashioned ghost story, and it was so good that two people actually ran out while it was happening. Gosh. Yes. So I thought, I mean, that's the moment. When you go and see a horror film, yeah. one of the pleasures of it is feeling all the screams and the sort of the tension yeah. in the room around you, and I really enjoyed it for that reason. Great. And number one, I am so pleased it's at number one, the best exotic Marigold Hotel. Are you and what a cast list. Are you going to go and see it? I think that's coming on the local screens. I shall just have a quick whiz through my little 
my little finger well, me here. Yeah, well, uh, 4th of May, yeah. it's going to be on, 2pm and 7.30. Well, the day before my 24th birthday, maybe there we should... Happy birthday, Daniel. Shall we go today? together? <laughs> Why not? Uh, yeah, I, th I do like it. I mean, if you look at the poster and the trailer, you know, notwithstanding the impressive cast list, you might expect it to be sort of that tacky, twee, slightly smug British comedy that's only made for the export market. But this, this isn't Mrs. Henderson Presents, the Stephen Frears film. It's more like Ladies in Lavender, which we yes. both really like. Yeah. I don't think it's great, but the cast are charming, and for unwinding on a Sunday afternoon, it will do it will serve its purpose as a good solid feel-good film so a few recommendations for this week then uh well the best exciting marigold hotel if you want just escapism uh the woman in black if you want to be scared because it is really good and the muppets and of course the artist if you haven't been well, seeing yeah but i suspect that most people will have but on the off chance that you haven't go and see it this is the fresh sound for the district live, live from Annick. this is lionheart radio right on to the uh, cult classic this week back to 2000 and American Psycho. Yeah, um, American Psycho, from the year 2000, a, a very bizarre mixture of genres. Um, it's part psychological thriller, part social satire, part nasty slasher film, and part black comedy. So, all sorts of really strange things. Based on the cult novel by Brett Easton Ellis from the early 90s, which was deemed unfilmable for quite a long time because of its, its rambling postmodern structure and its controversial nature, it was banned in Germany for being, in inverted commas, harmful to minors. And to this day, I think, if you want to buy it in Queensland, it's only available shrink-wrapped. So, now, Brett Easton Ellis was very flattered by it, <laughs> saying, oh, this is fantastic. You know, I've become sort of vilified in my own lifetime. Directed by Mary Harron, who um, is, you know, a name you might not be familiar with, but she is very significant yeah. in terms of the punk rock scene in the 70s. She's a Canadian filmmaker who famously dated Tony Blair while he was still at Oxford. And was, and her, <laughs> yes. And her, <laughs> yes. Yeah. and her claim to fame, well, if you can get through that bit, was that she was the first journalist to publicly interview the Sex Pistols. Ah. So yeah. she does go right back to the heart of that. She has made a couple of other films. Um, I Shot Andy Warhol, which, funnily enough, is about the lady who shot Andy Warhol. Yeah. And uh, the notorious Betty Page, which is about um, the famous fetish model from the 1950s, this wholesome girl who came from a, a Pentecostal background and ended up being this, well, this icon for the sadomasochistic movement and, uh, no, had a mess of mental breakdown at the yeah. end of the 1950s. Uh, do you remember Betty Page? No. 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 She was more I'm of not an... that old, you know. <laughs> I never said you were. <laughs> she was more of an American icon anyway. Um, her most recent film is The Moth Diaries, which hasn't been released here so far, but all of her films have this interest in fractured protagonists. They're usually shown from the point of view of people who are... Well, there's a debate as to whether or not they're mad, but it's people who have a very warped view on reality, and that view of yeah. reality is taken as red. The film is most famous for the star-making performance of Christian Bale, who had had some success as a child actor before this, because, of course, he was in Empire of the Sun, Steven Spielberg film, yeah. uh, which, out of Spielberg's serious films, is actually one of his better ones, and he turns up in Kenneth Branagh's Henry V as the boy, who's sort of hanging around with yeah. Brian Blessed and so forth. But this was the role that... No, after a few things in the 90s, like Pocahontas, which, which, in which he was a bit dull, uh, this was the role that brought him actually saying, announcing him as an adult star, and ultimately this was the role that got him noticed by Christopher Nolan and led him to being cast as Batman. Um, filmed on a budget of $7 million, of which it recouped, no, 34, so it did up quite well in North America, yeah. but didn't get very widely released elsewhere, and it has since attained quite a substantial cut volume on video. It had a very mixed critical reaction the first time round. Roger Ebert saw it at the Sundance Film Festival and described it as pornography, but he did later, when he came to review it on his programme at the movies, he ended up defending it, thinking it was a very interesting character study. 
He did later produce a straight-to-video sequel called American Psycho 2, which Easton Ellis denounced. In, in the manner of straight-to-video sequels, I mean, you look at something like nine and a half, you get nine yeah. and a half weeks in which it's Mickey Rourke throwing the contents of his fridge at Kim Basinger to show how much he loves her. And then in the sequel called Love in Paris, it's Kim Basinger's sister whom he has to throw the contents yeah. of his fridge at. Well, in the case of American Psycho 2, it's a girl who's whose babysitter Patrick Bateman murders and then he, mm. she kills him and then it becomes fat. It makes absolutely no sense at all. And the only thing, the interesting thing about that sequel is that it features Mila Kunis in one of her first roles and Mila Kunis would later find fame as the supporting leading Black Swan, yeah. which you still need to see. Yeah. Uh, so the plot is, and plot is a loose word to use, but we'll try. It centers around the character of Patrick Bateman, played by Christian Bale, who is an affluent 80s yuppie. He works in New York City on Wall Street in a company called Pierce & Pierce, not really doing much. I mean, there's an implication that his father owns part or whole of the business and is essentially giving him a tender so that he can do what he likes. And he spends his days eating Nouvelle Cuisine at vastly expensive restaurants where you need to wait six months just to get a reservation, yeah. and uh, dating incredibly attractive women, most of whom are models, and showing off to his friends basically. The truth is, he's a killer. And oh. uh, he, over the course of the film, he commits a number of bloody and very meticulously planned murders, um, including you know, hacking a death, a calling to death with an axe while wearing a plastic raincoat to protect his smart $64,000 yeah. suit. And tension arrives in the form of a detective played by Willem Dafoe, who's usually the villain in these kind of stories because of the way Willem Dafoe looks, yeah. uh, who is investigating the murder of his first victim called Paul Allen. Um, so before we go any further, um, first of all, 18 certificate territory, so if you've got very young children, they might not want to hang around. Yeah. And the second thing is, uh, I'm going to play you some of the soundtrack to give you an indication of what the film's like. This, um, the significance of this track will become clear once we've heard it. And if you're listening on the podcast, you're just going to have to hum at this point. Sorry. Huey Lewis there, and hip to be square. So is it true that Huey Lewis didn't like the film? Uh, it is, apparently, because of the context in which that song is used, which we need to explain. One of the things that Patrick Bateman um, has whenever he is uh, planning to kill or planning some kind of strange you know, orgiistic delight in the film is that he goes off into a spiel justifying his own taste in music. So in, in this case, that music is played just before he's about to kill Paul Allen with the axe. And what he does yeah. is he goes on into a, a spiel about how Hip to Be Squared is a fantastic social you know, piece of commentary. And people, yeah. say, people don't appreciate the lyrics, but they do. They really should listen. And then he turns around and says, no, here's an axe in the head. And later on in the film, when he has got two glamorous models writhing around on his bed, he is playing Phil Collins' studio and staring at himself in the mirror whilst he goes about his business. Yeah. No, it's, it's a very you know, interesting use of music music, which is you know, very much over the top and very extreme. So, American Psycho is a very odd concoction. It's you know, based on a book that was deemed unfilmable, directed by you know, a would-be documentarian, scored, you know, apart from the, the odd use of pop music, it's scored by John Cale of the Velvet Underground, yeah. who, uh, for the record, does the best version of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, which is on the Shrek soundtrack, and starring a future Batman. And it's a heady and confusing mix of genres which draw on films as varied as, you know, Wall Street and Eyes Wide Shut, which is yeah. quite a range. Yeah. And still divides critics and fans to this day. I mean, if you mention American Psycho in a, a sort of literary context, half the people will say, worst film ever made, destroyed the book, not accurate, and other people will say, actually, I think it's great. Um, there are many, many flaws to it, like so many of the cult films yeah. which we've covered on this slot, but actually there is also quite a lot to praise. 
For the first two-thirds of it, I think the film is a right-on-the-money satire of 80s greed with a sort of wry subtlety that Wall Street could only dream of. I mean, like Wall Street, it wears its heart completely on its sleeve. There is a yeah. very knowing, postmodern sense of humour running through it. So when characters make speeches about how great materialism is and how wonderful yeah. it is to be wealthy, it's, st it's steeped in irony. The difference between the two films, I mean, a lot of people hold Wall Street in a lot more high regard than I do. I don't know yeah. where you stand on Wall Street. Well, it is okay. Yeah, my, my thoughts exactly. Yeah. I mean, the pro I've often said that Oliver Stone is not a filmmaker, he's a lecturer who just happens to hold a camera. Yeah. And, you know, Wall Street basically comes at you saying, You at the back, greed is very, 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 very bad. Understand? <laughs> Except louder yeah. and for two and a half hours. Yeah. Whereas American Psycho is a much more expressionistic work. Yeah. It demonstrates the status quo so that we question it. It's yeah. a bit like, in a way, the, the plays of Bertolt Brecht, in which, you know, if you look at something like The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui, which is an allegorical retelling of the rise of Hitler, but in the uh, the Chicago Depression, where basically this character called Arturo Ui gives protection to the cabbage growers of Chicago. Yeah. And it's saying, you know, basically, it's it comes at you saying, this is an allegory about the rise of Hitler, and you have to spot all the things that are going on. It's very much in that vein, yeah. and I, I love Bertolt Brecht. The key theme of American Psycho, in terms of its approach to materialism, is actually found in the writings of Karl Marx. Have you read a lot of Marx? No. Okay. Um, but you've, have you heard of a, of a, um, oh, I may as well go through it. There is a phrase in Das Kapital, because I studied Marx a lot at university, called um, the fetishism of commodities. Have you heard of that? No. Okay. Big, uh, Politics 101. It's basically the phenomenon that happens in developed capitalist societies where human relationships become reduced to nothing but supply and demand. Uh, people basically matter less in and of themselves than they do in terms of what they can supply to others. And in this case, you know, what tokens of their wealth they bring to the social marketplace. So in other words, Marx is saying people in terms of emotional thinking beings don't matter. That the mat What matters is, in capitalist societies, what can I buy from you and what can I sell from you? And it doesn't matter if you get if you, if you get killed or starved to death and so forth. And this is reflected in the fact that everything about the life of Patrick Bateman and his colleagues is monetized and quantified and every single thing about them is competitive. There's little or no talk of what Pierce and Pierce, the company, actually does. Yeah. It's more to do with the image that it puts out. The key scene in American Psycho from that respect is what's known as the business card scene where Patrick Bateman is sitting with three of his colleagues in the boardroom just after a meeting. And Patrick Bateman says, I just got my new business cards made. Do you want to see them? And he takes out this immaculate, shimmering white business card, slides it across the table and says, feast on that. Only for his three colleagues to get out their own and sort of show off, and theirs is even better. And it cuts to this internal monologue of Patrick Bateman you know, in voiceover saying, I can't believe that Paul has done this. I'm going to have to kill him now. <laughs> something along those lines. Yeah. But basically, you know, it's something which on the surface to us seems completely ridiculous because it is so small and yet it affects someone so deeply so the immediate reaction is well you're just screwed up and believe me he is screwed up but it's you know in a world where wealth and reputation and perfection are everything to fall even slightly short of the mark even on something so tiny is completely unacceptable so business cards big thing for americans yeah. Yeah. big thing yes in and this country we tend to be a bit more sort of yes. understated yes. and modest um so i mean it is that sort of the the fetish levels of excess in hollywood you know in which the image is more than the person behind yeah. it i mean there is actually a connection there with heathers which we'll talk about in a few weeks time because you no know, that is a film in which basically 
has a number of characters who are deeply unlikable in the high school, but as soon as they commit suicide, they become martyrs, and everyone says, oh, they were fantastic, and I love them all the time. We'll come on to Heathers yeah. in a few weeks at 11 o'clock at night, which we'll yes. think about for various reasons. So you have you know, various scenes of psychotic violence in American Psycho, which, like I say, is 18 certificate. I did describe it partly as a slasher film because there are, you know, it, if you wanted to be unkind, you could reduce whole sections of it down to Patrick Bateman running around with a knife. <laughs> Not always after women in underwear, which would be the cliche in slasher yeah. films, but no, it's, it's, it's the 80s suited equivalent of a slasher film, if you like. Um, but the violence is both an extension of the greed and envy and a reaction to it. It's an extension in that so much of the dialogue is, you know, is filled, it's basically them talking about these incredibly vacuous subjects, a bit like, you know, um, all the stuff about blue sky thinking and so yeah. forth, which, which just, you know, is like having a screwdriver pushed into your brain. It, you know, it's, it's stuff that's part and parcel of the business, but it's so annoying. I mean, at your, you know, involvement at Newcastle University, you must have had to sit through loads of meetings in which people just talk about stuff that means nothing at all. Uh, most of them, really. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't trying and to... They're the, and they're the finance ones. <laughs> I wasn't trying to land you in it, but I just... Yeah. So, there's a sequence, for instance, that when uh, Patrick Bateman and Paul Allen are in a club, and they're sort of talking about complete banalities and saying, oh, it's fantastic, a model comes up to him and says, no, what is it you do? And he says, murders and executions. <laughs> and the model corrects him and says, you mean murders and acquisitions? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's the whole thing of yeah. when a bit of truth slips out... It's either like everyone's desensitised so that they don't yeah. notice, or, pa or Patrick Bateman is actually so screwed that he doesn't yes. notice. I mean, it, of course, that, that goes back in a way to Norman Bates, you know, the comment about, no, every boy's best friend is his mother. <laughs> it's true on one level, but yeah. not so true on another. Um, so you have that sort of thing in which it is playing very much for black comedy, and it is an extension of that lifestyle. But you also see, in the later stages of the film, Bale, Bateman's character sort of falling apart, and this this strange, you know, like I say, materialistic lifestyle causing him to be repulsed and go into self-loathing and, you know, cracks start to emerge after the murder of, of Paul Allen. In, in a mate, you could liken the film to some extent to Savage Grace, which we talked about nearly a year ago, I think, yeah. something like that, because, you know, in the same way that Savage Grace's thesis is basically, if you live in a world with infinite wealth and no boundaries, you will go mad. Mm. American Psycho is saying something similar. If you allow yourself, if you sell your soul to money, your your sanity will quickly follow and you'll yeah. never get it back. I mean, that manif that doesn't necessarily always manifest itself in killing people. Yeah. But in yeah. this particular case, because it's doing, you know, the extreme way is the way to demonstrate the fact. And you see, you know, for instance, there's all sorts of images about sort of, you know, Patrick Bateman putting on a, one of those face masks when he's getting ready for work, which is saying, no, he's guarding himself. Sorry, I hit the microphone again. And you see him when he's sleeping with the models, he's looking at himself in the mirror and flexing his muscles saying, I'm so fantastic. But you clearly can see in his eyes that he's dying inside yeah. um and so you you believe that the world is starting to turn on the character even as he's trying to embrace it as yeah. if he sold his soul to this there have been numerous comparisons with critics that have compared the film to a clockwork orange which is always very very dangerous to compare anything to a clockwork orange um not just because i love it but because it is one of the one of the definitive explorations yeah. of cinematic violence i mean there are loose connections in the sense that they they both have fantastic soundtracks you know, in the case of clockwork orange obviously it's beethoven and both of them involve confrontations which with beggars which sets a, a certain section of the plot yeah. in motion because you remember in the famous subway sequence in clockwork orange where um, Alex and his Drews go down and the guy's singing um, Molly Malone and says, can you spare some copper, my brother? And then they beat him up. Yeah. Um, and both 
films are part of what's called a part of what's called the aestheticization of violence and sorry to go very technical this morning but no it's a significant film for those reasons but basically it's the depiction of violence in a manner which is very deliberately stylish in order to raise moral and political questions so for instance blue velvet which again we talked yeah. about a long time ago the depiction of violence in that which is very extreme and very much no it's violence if you can call it that is beautiful to look at it raises questions about your position to the violence in the sense of are you condoning it or are you yeah. condemning it no and it's in the case of blue velvet it's very intelligently done however the difference between the films is that clockwork orange manages to be this fantastic this fantastic dichotomy between on the one hand it's an argument against state repression but on the other hand it's a demonstration of moral relativism because no the original novel by Anthony Burgess was intended to be a warning against left-wing states reconditioning people as an alternative to prison while satirizing yeah. the militaristic state of the right. But what Kubrick did with the film was that he took that and basically said, look, actually morality doesn't come into it, it's all to do with who has power and who hasn't, and right and wrong doesn't come into yeah. it. I think that's the interpretation. Whereas American Psycho is much more like... I suppose like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer because it's putting you inside the mind of a killer and showing, you know, basically using that as a vehicle for the, the darker side of capitalism. Yeah. There's a very powerful image in it where after he has committed the first murder, he takes off, the, this is Patrick Bateman, takes off the, the raincoat and turns his face away from the camera and you see the side of his face that's not covered in blood and he lights a cigar so it's the, after... Mm. The sort of the bloody side of capitalism, it's the, <laughs> it's the fastidious, dignified side that has nothing to do with it. And of course, his suit has got no yeah. blood on it at all. And the whole film has, in terms of its visuals, a very ad like sensibility. You know, it looks like, you know, an advert for Gillette or, uh, <laughs> yes, or um, yeah. those George Clooney yeah. coffee adverts. It's very plastic and sort of sophisticated, mm. but not sophisticated. The big question about American Psycho if, is if you've got a character who is so warped and so. No, impenetrable, who do you sympathise with? Which yeah. is a classic question which often comes up in films of a very dark subject matter. And the film sort of shillies and shallies about this because you have the two supporting characters, Willem Dafoe's detective, who sort of comes in every now and again to ask Patrick Bateman a couple of awkward questions and then says, well, I'll go back and uh, think about yeah. that and uh, come back again. And uh, the other one is um, Bateman's secretary, played by Chloe Savini, who um, seems to have this kind of strange pull on Patrick Bateman that the other women in his life don't because she's much more plain and much more she's not affected by the greed yeah. of the culture and Bateman has odd feelings about it there's, a, there's an image where he's invited her back to his flat and she's just talking about you know, her, her ambitions and they're yeah. very sort of self-deprecating and he's standing behind her with a nail gun and he eventually decides actually no I'm not going to kill you um leave yeah. <laughs> it's very strange in the last half hour um I will say this as a fan, but it does start to fall apart. I mean, it sort of grabs at the different genres, and there's bits of David Cronenberg body horror in there, like Naked Lunch, yeah. there's bits of crime thriller, there's bits of horror, and it never quite decides what it wants to be. I mean, there's a sequence of Bateman running through the streets of Wall Street, basically going mad and the yeah. world falling apart, which is like the final act of Eyes Wide Shut, where Tom Cruise is going to and from all the places, going yeah. to the mall, going to the hotel, basically the dream is collapsing on him yeah. and then he wakes up, if you read Eyes Wide Shut like that. And the film almost doesn't have the guts to follow through with the idea of the Bateman character collapsing in on himself and so forth. And yeah. the ending where he basically says, none of what you've seen before means anything. It's, I mean, you can read it two ways, but in one sense it's a massive cop as like, oh, we're just going to go in circles and you yeah. haven't really learned anything and so forth. So from a character development point of view, that's a problem. 
I think the film is, no, despite those problems, it is redeemed by the performance of Christian Bale, who is absolutely stunning. I mean, yeah. he's a great actor, and no, yeah. he's really good in the Batman films. I think, you no, know, the prestige is still up there with his best work. Yeah. And he just has this incredibly... I mean, do you remember Charlie Sheen in Wall Street, where he's yes. got the immaculate yes. hair and the bright yeah. blue suits and so forth? Yeah. It's, it's almost like a cartoony version of Charlie Sheen. Yeah. Because it is... I do mean Charlie Sheen, don't I? As opposed to Martin Sheen. Yes, I think it Which was. was. Yeah, I think it yes. was Charlie, back when he had a career. Um, so it, it's that sort of very plastic sensibility, and because Bale has a history of going all night, the whole nine yards with his performances of you no know, gaining yeah. massive muscle or you no know, losing huge amounts of weight <laughs> in the case of Rescue Dawn or The Fighter, no, he just has that plastic sensibility very well. He's very well supported by Willem Dafoe, who occasionally can be a bit of a ham. I mean, he's been cast recently in pantomime villain mode. I mean, you look at, obviously, the Spider-Man series, yeah. in which he's very good, or um, David Lynch's Wilder Heart, in which he's seriously creepy. But in this case, I think it's... I think it's his best performance in this since Mississippi Burning, which if yeah. you haven't, you've seen Mississippi Burning, yes, yeah, yeah. the great Alan Parker film yeah. which, in which he's really, really good. So to sum up, it's a flawed and very difficult film. It is tough because of you know, all the violence, which you know, most of which I've skirted over, partly because yeah. of the time we're talking about and partly because, well, it gets repetitive. And like Savage Grace, the precise treatment of its subject matter may prove alienating and impenetrable. But if you do persevere, it is a far more compelling indictment of 80s greed than Wall Street, and Christian Bale is terrific. And it was Charlie Sheen. Yes. Lionheart Radio. We're not here next week. Sadly not, because you're away. Yes, but we are back in two weeks' time, which is the 24th of March, mm -hmm. and our cult film will be... The Omen, from 1976. And in three weeks' time, which is Saturday the 31st of March, we are at 11 o'clock at night. Yes. So make a note in your diary. Yep, that's part of the fifth birthday radiothon here on Lionheart Radio, and we will be talking about Heathers, but we'll give more details of that on the 24th. Right, on to the new releases now. And we're going to start with John Carter. Yeah, formerly known as John Carter of Mars, for reasons which we'll come on to. It's the first live-action effort by Andrew Stanton of Pixar. Andrew Stanton's the guy who wrote all three Toy Story films, so instantly yeah. in the good books. But he's also the director of WALL-E and Finding Nemo, which, for my money, are Pixar's best films. No, yeah. I mean, I love Finding Nemo to pieces. Yeah. And you remember when Finding Nemo came out and it was in cinemas for something like six months because of, you know, how many people went to see it on repeat viewing. I love it. Based on the seminal sci-fi novel The Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs, which is over 100 years old, uh, and apparently that was a huge influence on everything from Flash Gordon through to Star Wars and so on and so forth, and we both have very strong feelings yeah. about Flash Gordon, in a good way, of course. So, the story, it, I'll give you a very brief synopsis, because if, you know, if we go into the full thing, we'll be here all day. <coughs> the story follows a Civil War veteran called John Carter, who is played in one of those odd quirks of fate by an actor called Taylor Kitsch. <laughs> which you know fits in very nicely uh, he basically he goes wandering into a, he's the civil war is over he goes wandering into a cave looking for gold ends up on mars um as you do yeah as you do which always happened to civil war veterans you know the priests are reducted by aliens and he goes on mars he says it's mars the martians say no this is called barsoom and he gets involved in this massive intergalactic war in which you know this you know, these strange double-headed aliens you know recruit him and so forth you know and i can't go much further than that without drowning you in exposition because we would be here all day. 
There's a certain number of things that need to be said. I mean, it is clearly a project that Andrew Stanton wanted to do. He has said in various interviews that he had waited 36 odd years for the um, for the film to be made because he loved the novel when he first read it in the 70s, and he spent five years working on it. He actually went so far as to say, "Look, I've spent 250 million dollars on this film, which is a huge amount of money," and very bravely said, I don't care who sees it because I've made it for myself, which is a very dangerous thing to say. The other thing I would say is that all the criticism that's come out saying, oh, it's Avatar light, oh, it's Star Wars light, is not entirely valid because the work does precede those. I mean, obviously, yeah. Star Wars borrowed from all sorts of things. So, I mean, it's like saying that Flash Gordon is Star Wars light, when, of course, <laughs> it clearly isn't. Yeah. The pro there are, however, three massive problems with the film. First of all, the 3D is terrible. Not because of, not just because it's in 3D in of itself, but it's retrofitted 3D. Right. And what they do with retrofitted 3D is they basically put the film through a computer and they sort of add the dimensions artificially. Yeah. So occasionally a spear will come at you or a finger <laughs> will point and so forth, and it just looks very fake. The second thing is the script is. I mean, Andrew Stanton is a very good writer. You think back to to Wall-E, in which the opening section of that is 20 minutes of near silence, but it's yeah. a brilliant piece of storytelling. And this, he's clearly lost his touch, because it's it's you know, a very pulpy story, but it's executed with so much exposition, and it plods along, and it's, it's a bit like f trying to follow the Star Wars prequels, albeit not as racially yeah. offensive. The third thing is the fact that it's very cynically marketed. I mean... The story goes that they were originally calling it John Carter of Mars, and then it went to one of these Hollywood focus groups which said, oh, you have to take out the words of Mars, because if people think it's a science fiction film, they won't pay to see it. And despite the fact that the publicity, it's a guy on a red planet. Mm. So, <laughs> makes no sense at yes. all. Um, it does feel like a sort of a personal film, in, a, in the only way that personal films can be, that has subsequently been market tested to within an inch of its life. So, if the focus groups and so forth hadn't got their hands on it. It might have been this, you no, know, this huge folly in the way that Heaven's Gate would have been, but at least it would have been a folly that was motivated by personal ambition. Whereas what you get now is a cataclysmically boring failure, and I think it is going to flop. I mean, if, if it costs 250 million, it's got to take over 550 just to get its money back. So, you know, just... Just stand by, Hollywood executives. Mixed, You're gonna... uh, mixed critical views on it, aren't there? Yes. I mean, I think a lot of that might be down to the things I said, people not yeah. getting pulpy science fiction, people being ill-disposed towards science fiction because of no... I mean, anyone who calls Transformers science fiction is out of their mind. But So I understand the mixed reaction. I just think that it's going to be very hard to sell, partly because they've, made, they've shot themselves a foot in the foot with the marketing. OK, on to another one that the critics aren't so keen on, which is The Raven, described by one as a squawking silly picture that never takes flight. Yeah, I, uh, it's interesting. It's a new film by James McTeague, who uh, started his career as uh, an assistant director on the Matrix trilogy, working for yeah. the Wachowskis, then directed V for Vendetta, which I really like. I think that's the best Alan Moore adaptation, and although it is incredibly silly up to a point, and most recently he did a film called Ninja Assassins, which was basically loads of ninjas going around assassinating each other with sort of CGI blood. Um, it's a fictional retelling of the last days of Edgar Allan Poe, who's played by John Cusack, and basically he is called in by the police in 1849 to help them solve a series of murders because there seems to be a copycat killer who is roaming London, a bit like Jack the Ripper in a way, yeah. basically going around committing murders that mimic Poe's story. So you get people being sliced in half, like the pit in the pendulum, or someone's heart being buried under the floorboards, which is the telltale heart, and all that sort of thing. And it's interesting that we do mention the clockwork orange because of course when that was released one of the reasons it was the Kubrick withdrew it was because of accusations of copycat killing yeah. people going around dressing up as the droogs and beating up old women 
on the plus side, John Cusack is a brilliant piece of casting because he looks exactly like Edgar Allan Poe in those drawings, <laughs> yeah. and he apparently has quite, lost quite a lot of weight for the role, so he, he does that very well. And I do quite like James McTeague. I mean, as a, as a sort of silly popcorn potball director, because he knows how to do romping blockbuster yeah. spectacle. I mean, V for Vendetta is actually very good. And I was, no, as a, no, a fan of serial killer films, no, things like Kiss the Girls, Oracle, Silence of the Lambs, and Manhunter. No, I, I'd be up for this sort of thing. The problem is that it very quickly becomes a paint-by-numbers serial killer film that just happens to have Edgar Allan Poe in it. I mean, Edgar Allan Poe's influence on cinema is great. I mean, you look back to things like John Carpenter's The Fog, which we talked yeah. about, or the Roger Corman version of Pit in the Pendulum and Fall of the Last of Usher, which is still very, which is still very creepy. The story is all over the place, and it, it's just a little bit boring. So my advice would be, if you want a film about crimes caused by authors writing go and watch misery again because that's still it's still very creepy after all these years but it has got pamphoris in it yeah and pamphoris is pretty good yeah. so no that's the only, that and john cusack's it's performance is the only reason to see it talking about uh favorite actors philip glenister and uma thurman in a film together bellamy yeah new film by declan donnellan and nick ormerod who directed a short called the big fish a few years ago not to be confused with the tim burton film big fish which is really great um based on the 19th century novel by guy de Passant, hope I'm pronouncing that right. Beautifully pronounced. Thank you. And the story follows a roguish figure called Georges Duroy, who is played by Robert Pattinson, or R. Pats, as he's often known, who works his way up from humble beginnings to a high society through the seduction of various women. And in this case, it's Christine Ritchie, uh, Kristen Scott Thomas, and Uma Thurman. So a pretty formidable female cast. Indeed. I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of Uma Thurman, although she is very good as Venus in The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which, if you haven't seen, you should check that out. It is total fluff, but not necessarily in a bad way. I mean, it is one of those films in which the most important things on it are not the social satire or the social commentary. It's about the costumes being nice and Robert Pattinson looking gorgeous. I mean, you think back to the first Twilight film, where the first time we see Edward Cullen, the camera sort of falls over slightly. Yeah. He's so gorgeous, I could barely hold myself together. And it doesn't have much between its ears. I mean, it's trying desperately hard to be The Great Gatsby. And it's, yeah. you know, I, I would say either go and watch the 70s version of Great Gatsby with Robert Redford, which is still very good, or if you can wait long enough, Baz Luhrmann's version is coming out, I think, next year, and that's going to be really good. Obviously, a week for big British TV stars. David Tennant is uh, next. He's in The Decoy Bride. Yeah, it is one of those films, however, that it's, you know, sometimes when you get, um... Do you remember a film called Swinging with the Finkels? No. No, it was this little scene, British comedy in inverted commas, that was the last thing that Martin Freeman did on the big screen before he got cast in The Hobbit. Yeah. But it was one of those things that you do it beforehand, but it doesn't see the light of day until you're a star. Yeah. And uh, so, in this case, it's the new film by Cherie Folkestone, who directed the TV version of Casanova with David Tennant and Peter O'Toole, which was quite good. Um, and the story follows Tennant as James Arbour, who is a sort of James Herriot-esque English author, who is marrying a film star called Lara Tyler, played by Alice Eve, and they're trying to, to avoid the paparazzi turning up at their wedding and ruining everything they go off to this remote island only to find that the paparazzi followed them there so they to basically get away from it they they cotton on to the idea of a decoy bride they enlist a vote um a vocal a local played by kelly mcdonald and basically all manner of british farcical things go wrong it is essentially, you know, a very ropey, not especially funny, but not terrible British farce. Like I say, the kind of thing that, Do that David Tennant would have made to pay the bills in between being cast as Doctor Who and doing Hamlet or something like that. The main disappointment for me is Kelly MacDonald, who, if I'm not confusing her with someone else, was in No Country for Old Men, and everyone thought when she did No Country for Old Men, she was, uh, she was going to be destined for big stardom, and it hasn't quite come her way. Bit of a mixed bunch this week. 
Usually we go out on a high, shall we? It's Trishna. We will, because this is the film of the week. Not just because the other stuff is a bit underwhelming, but because it's the new film by Michael Winterbottom, whom I think is a really great British filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, he's the guy, for those who don't know, who did things like 24-Hour Party People, which is the definitive film about the Manchester scene of the 90s, featuring Steve Coogan as Tony Wilson. Uh, a Mighty Heart, with Angelina Jolie's best performance about the... Uh, the activist Marianne Pearl, uh, a cock and bull story again with um, Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon, which is really good. Most recently, he did The Killer Inside Me, which was very controversial. Um, but he is one of these—he is one of these British filmmakers who makes films very quickly and for very little money. But yeah. nine times out of ten, they're very interesting. So it's an adaptation of the Thomas Hardy novel Tess of the D'Urbervilles, which was most famously made into um, a three-hour version by Roman Polanski at the end of the seventies yeah. with Natasha Kinski. And we talked about that a little bit when we were doing Bad Lieutenant all those long weeks ago. Yes. Um, so it's basically, it's been updated, so instead of in 19th century Wessex, you have 21st century India. And the story followed, I mean, if you know the story of Tess of the D'Urbervilles, you have a, a young, you know, peasant character called um, uh, Trishna, played by Frida Pinto, who is in Slumdog Millionaire, yeah. uh, who lives a simple village life. She meets uh, a British businessman called Jay Singh, played by Riz Ahmed, who was in Four Lions, was really great in Four Lions. And he says, no, my father owns a hotel in the big city, why don't you come to the city and have a new life and I'll yeah. take care of you and so forth. And the relationship starts off very well, but eventually descends into very dark sexual matters and betrayal. Um, it's really interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, it's Michael Winterbottom back old form. Although he is a very interesting filmmaker, he is guilty occasionally of being like Mother Goose. You know, when he's good, he's brilliant, but when yeah. he's bad, he's awful. So on the one hand, you've got things like those films that I mentioned, or Welcome to Sarajevo, which we talked about yeah. two weeks ago with Woody Harrelson. When he's bad, however, he makes things like Nine Songs, which is, you know, people you know, making very explicit love and talking about icebergs, and you just want yeah. to rip your hair out. He has adapted Hardy a couple of times before because he did a version of Jude the Obscure with Christopher Eccleston in before Christopher Eccleston was a big star and he did The Claim based on the Mayor of Casterbridge, both of which are very interesting. And he clearly understands Hardy's obsessions with infidelity and the clash between town and city life and forbidden love. And I think this... The latter, and indeed this, rivals the 1960s version of Far From the Madding Crowd as the best Hardy adaptation. And no, bear in mind, I'm a huge Terrence yeah. Stamp fan, so for me to compare it to Far From the Madding Crowd is a big claim. The second thing is, it's a very inventive retelling of it. I mean, it's a nice companion piece to Andrew Arnold's Wuthering Heights in the sense that it takes a very old, rustic, classic text and reinterprets yeah. it in an interesting way. In this case, it's it's... A drama chiefly, but there are bits of Bollywood in. There's a lot of dance sequences and lots yeah. of melodrama, which does very well. The third thing, on a personal level, it's good to see Frida Pinto back on form, because after Slumdog Millionaire, she kind of lost her way a bit and ended up in things like yeah. Immortals and Miral, the Julian Schnabel film, which was all over the place. So I think the Polanski version of Tess is still the definitive version, but this is still a very interesting counterpoint, and if you have this and Wuthering Heights together, it'd be a good double bill. So that's the film of the week. It is the film of the week, and if you're not uh, up for that, go and see uh, Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, The Woman in Black, or The Muppets. Right, we'll be back in two weeks' time. Bye. Bye. Iron Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.